The Future Works, a podcast for workforce professionals, hosted by me, Melinda Mack. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the October edition of the Future Works podcast. As you're accustomed to by now, we're going to kick this off by talking about the moment we're in. It's the end of October. We are two weeks away from what will likely be the most contentious election of our lifetimes. Early voting's already begun. In New York, it starts a little later this week. And there's long lines snaking throughout the country as Americans are shattering records for voter turnout. We're also entering what public health experts are now calling the third wave of COVID-19. We're averaging about 60,000 new cases a day in the U.S., just about a 30% increase from where we were a few weeks ago. And now it's largely hitting rural areas in the Midwest. We're also hearing dire warnings about the months ahead, especially as the holidays start to roll around and pandemic fatigue has really settled in. Many of us are missing our families, traditions, the winter's coming, the holidays are really gonna be a major test. This uptick in COVID, the potential shift in federal leadership, and of course the serious economic crisis we're all staring down has also meant many more people are starting to talk about what economic recovery really looks like. Even as unemployment rates continue to struggle to get below double digits, and we're seeing significant increases in the number of Americans on cash and food assistance, those terrified of being evicted, there are actually people still doing okay, while some of them are doing more than okay. The Business Insider reported back in August that the net wealth of America's richest has soared. From March to June, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos saw his wealth rise by an estimated $48 million. Billion, with a B. That's like a third of the New York state budget. We also heard in the last podcast from Opportunity Insights that jobs are almost completely returned for the highest wage earners, but fewer than half the jobs lost this spring have returned for those making less than $20 an hour. We're at a crossroads. How do we look ahead for the economy that we want to have in the future, recognizing that we need to create new jobs to replace those that are not gonna be coming back or not coming back anytime soon? What we do know is that following the last recession, nationwide, we saw an explosion in the volume of low-wage work. So this time around, we likely need jobs that pay better. We also know that many jobs had opened for long periods of time. Just think back to eight months ago, there were a lot of jobs who just sat unfilled for, for months and months and months at a time. But often those jobs had unpredictable hours, they lacked benefits, they had very few opportunities for advancement, Therefore, many had high turnover rates in key sectors that drove our economy. So if we're really gonna change the nature of the economy, what if we try something new? What if we tried a good job strategy? With this framing in mind, today we're gonna speak with our colleague, Mark Popovich, the director of Good Companies, Good Jobs Initiative at the Aspen Institute. He's gonna give us a scoop on how job quality has evolved, the impact of the pandemic on jobs, and why this is actually a good bet for employers. So with that, we hope you enjoy the show. And of course, don't forget to vote. This is Mark Popovich. I'm the director of the Good Companies, Good Jobs Initiative. That's part of the Economic Opportunities Program at the Aspen Institute. What I appreciate about your work is that in some ways the Aspen Institute was a forerunner and leader on this many, many years in advance of other folks even thinking about it. Uh, But you've also taken a really interesting approach in your work around the employer side. So 
I'd like for you to define what job quality is for us, um, because I know that many of us have different interpretations around what that could potentially mean. So I think the first aspect is we all want and we all see, see a need for a sustainable economy. And to have a sustainable economy, these are general principles, the economy needs to work better for everyone. It needs to be more inclusive and it needs to be more equitable. And that's going to engage businesses, workers, investors, government, and others working together to create the good jobs that enable workers to thrive and for companies to be productive and profitable and, and communities that the businesses and the, the workers are in to benefit as well. So an aspect of job quality means, first of all, that one's work is valued and respected and meaningfully contributes to the goals of the organization. And as a worker, you can see that, you can understand it. It, it is part, we spend so much time working and in the workplace for that work to be respected, for you to be treated with respect and value, for you to understand how you're contributing in a meaningful, meaningful way is very important. Having a voice in one's workplace, we think, is consistent with both the needs of the worker and the employer, and um, also in, in, in a particular area to the workforce development audience, accessible opportunities to learn and grow. So that's an aspect of it as well. So we see a couple of, with those as general principles, sort of in practical terms, what does a quality job offer? wages to cover basic living expenses, uh, stable and predictable income on opportunities as well to build wealth and assets, working conditions that are safe, are free from discrimination and harassment, and they're welcoming of workers' concerns and ideas for improvement. Third is stable, predictable work hours. This has been a problem for some subsectors yeah. and industries and for certain kinds of occupations. And then finally, uh, but you almost can't separate it from wages, is benefits that facilitate a healthy and stable life. Things like health insurance, paid sick and vacation time, family medical leave, retirement savings, disability insurance and the like. So I think a couple things about this is it's not qualitative. I mean, there's some aspects that you might consider qualitative, but I think these can and must be benchmarked. Um, in order to know whether something is good, bad, or indifferent, you kind of need to understand what's the measuring stick. So if for, let's say, for long-term care versus manufacturing, is this a good job or a bad job? Kind of depends on the local labor market, of course, but it also depends on the sector. So you have to have benchmarks that you can look across that. Um, and then I think another aspect of this really is diversity and inclusion, and in particular, equity. We know in the end from the research studies that have been done, that a diverse and inclusive business that's treating its employees equitably outperforms other businesses. So all of these, I would say, are aspects of job quality, but they also connect in very important ways to, in, the, in material ways, to the business and financial performance of the employer. That's great. And I would say, I think for folks who are really interested in digging more and also like in some ways seeing the result of the evolution, uh, the Aspen Institute actually has on its website a full toolkit and toolbox full of information around job quality that is really easy to, to read through and also would be a great tool to work with staff um, around understanding what job quality means. Um, so what I do want to ask... And everybody though, gets an opportunity to send us their what they're finding useful as a tool or a toolkit, we'd be happy to add it to the toolkit. So 
the appeal is out there to uh, to get even more recommendations to assemble and for that other people to use. That's great. And what I love about it too, is it goes, it goes through a full network of like understanding what it is, how you assess it, the business aspect of it, how you actually continuously improve, um, which again, I think is what we're finding, especially when it comes to job quality um, and really any work in workforce development, you know, there is this concept of things continue to emerge and shift as the labor market changes and employer needs change, uh, which in many ways leads me to the next question, which is just around um, the impact of COVID-19, right? I think as we started at the upfront, um, you know, there are many inequities that we're finding in the labor market that have always existed. And in some ways, this has really laid bare what some of those inequities look like, um, but also in some ways, like the entrenched challenges associated with some of, some of the key sectors. Um, can you talk a little bit about what sectors you're seeing, in some ways, the essential work sectors that are really struggling with some quality jobs challenges, which are also causing market challenges for the business community? Yeah, so I was uh, going back over and looking at uh, data about uh, labor market performance in New York State overall and different parts of this, of your fine state and uh, looking at different sectors. And I think you know it's, it was interesting to me that um, not looking at unemployment because unemployment's a really um, specific measure, right? And if people leave the labor force, they're not counted in. <clears throat> in the unemployment number, but looking at what's happening with the total number of people employed, that's kind of a different measure, but I think an important measure of how the economy, that part of the labor market is doing. And it was interesting to me to note that overall, the state of New York has taken about a 10% hit in the total number of people employed. That's huge. Um, that's a very, large reduction yeah. in employment. Um, that's a lot of people who are not earning incomes that used to have incomes. So looking also at the, um, the occupational categories and industries, um, just wrote a piece along with uh, PHI, uh, Angelina Del Rio Drake, about domestic workers, um, using some data that they've developed, but also some survey data from the National Domestic Workers Alliance. This is, it's a crushing burden. I mean, at this point, we're looking at 70% unemployment. Most of those workers don't think they're going to be rehired by their employer or get the jobs that, they're, that they had, even when the pandemic ends. Um, half of them don't have enough money for food this month and something like eight out of 10 are, are worried right now that eventually they're going to face eviction. Um, those are just horrible numbers in terms of, of who, how deep the, the trough has been for them. And of course, this is concentrated among people who are already in poverty. I mean, poverty is kind of a pre-existing condition for domestic workers. It's focused on women, particularly women of colors and, and women of color and immigrants. And this is not just a sort of inevitable outcome of the labor market operating. This is really a, um, the, some decisions that we made as a society and as public policy to keep domestic workers who are nannies, well, they're mainly home health aides, nannies and uh, home cleaners out from under the Fair Labor Standards Act and out from under the minimum wage law and a lot of other protections that we count on for workers. So the other three sectors that I 
two sectors that I see right now and a sector I predict we're going to see more impact going forward is, of course, hospitality and leisure, a gigantic hit, and we don't know what's going to happen there. Um, retail is associated with that. And in some places, depending on the market, construction and maybe manufacturing. And then the one that I'm looking at that I think in the longer term is going to be a hard hit is the public sector, state and local governments. Um, yeah. we, we've not been able to see the passage of a plan, uh, COVID response plan that would help state and local governments. Um, I come out of state and local government and I know they have to balance their budget and I know the revenues are going down through the floor and into the basement. We saw in 2008 and 2009 that that sector lagged in terms of when they took the hit, but that the hit lasted a long time. And again, who are the workers who are hit the most? It's disproportionately women and people of color. So um, this is, I think, from my looking at the numbers, true of, true of New York and different regions of New York. And, you know, it's a general theme that you would see across the U.S., yeah, and I think for folks who have been regular listeners of the podcast, we certainly have talked about not only the disproportionate impacts on women and people of color, but also any really marginalized population. So people with disabilities, people who are formerly incarcerated, um, really places that um, small businesses, places that typically have been able to, in some ways, be the first job opportunity for a lot of New Yorkers, um, seeing their recovery sort of really hit a stutter step, I think is really concerning for folks because to your point before, folks are already in poverty and often because of the gig economy, folks are piecing together a couple of additional jobs or opportunities on the side to try to make enough money to cover rent and food and hopefully something that, you know, allowed them to save. But in reality, all those opportunities are drying up. I mean, I was looking at the JOLTS data recently, uh, and for folks who are not labor market junkies like Mark and I, um, <laughs> this is really the, around the number of jobs that are open and the number of people available and looking for work. And there's 2.5 New Yorkers or people really in the Northeast region for every one job. So we know it's going to be a while before we're back to what would be considered anything even close to full employment. Thinking about from the employer perspective, um, I can see why, especially in an economic downturn, the response for many would be this sounds expensive, or we have a benefits program, or the model we have works for our bottom line. Um, what are the conversations with businesses in some ways in the COVID era around a move towards job quality as they build back? So uh, one of the things that I did that I'm most proud of at the Hitachi Foundation, and I bring that over to the uh, Aspen Institute, the work that we're doing in the Economic Opportunities Program, was um, a deep dive using something called the positive deviance active research strategy. What that means is they begin with the idea that there are people out in the world, entities who've solved even the most difficult, challenging problems. And what we need to do is, and they face real world conditions as they've done that. So what we really need to do is learn what the solutions are as opposed to form a committee of uh, highly qualified and educated individuals uh, can you know convene at some nice resort uh, and come up with a solution that we then design a grant program for and everybody proposes to do that because that's what the grant dollars are for and you know you kind of do the evaluation and in the end you find out you didn't get the impact that you would have liked to have had and you call for more research and more grant programs um, kind of unsatisfying in the end so we did this other approach was we looked for companies 
um, who simultaneously were outperforming their peers in terms of business metrics and financial return. And at the same time, they're frontline workers, and we kind of define that as about $50,000 a year and under, were doing better than their peers in the same industry and in the same labor market in terms of pay and benefits and stability and, and, and uh, you know, voice in the workplace and the rest. And what we found is that there is this virtuous cycle that begins not with people, but it has to get there. It begins with a company innovating in process or product. Like a company may come up with a better thing as a product, or they might come up with a better service um, in healthcare. And in order to do that consistently, they focus on process as well. And then as they innovate and rise in innovation and product and process, eventually they have to deal with the people issue. So it's PP, three P's, people, process, and product. And when it sounds like an advanced Six Sigma, the way you're describing it. It is. It, it, in a way, the problem has been that a lot of the, the process orientations have been about, you know, the process and the documentation for doing that, but not around, you know, like, do we have the people who can do this? And are we keeping the people who can do this? So an example that I'll give you is um, a really interesting company in upstate New York, Optimax. Um, they we made- love Optimax. We love oh, good. them. <laughs> yeah, they're great. Rick and LA are wonderful. Yeah. And um, uh, we did a case study about Optimax and we visited them a number of times and we have a video on the website about them. They get and they keep people and they plan on having people if they fit within the culture and the environment of Optimax to be lifetime employees. And they hope that they'll retire with like a million dollars in their retirement account. And they pay them uh, top dollar to be working there. And they've set up a system that allows them not just to meet quality specs, but to meet performance specs in terms of the productivity that they, they bring to the job. And they train and provide you know, those kinds of opportunities, both within the company on the clock, but also within the community from other providers. They kind of do everything that a, kind of a good employer would do. And they're knocking it out of the park. I mean, they're really growing fast. They have even more orders than they can handle. Um, They've expanded a number of times. This is a very successful business. And if you ask Rick or Mike, they'll tell you it's about their people. And it's the people investment that they've made that allows the product to be as high-end as it is and for the process to be followed to be able to produce that product. You know, I like that it's in some ways, um, the way that you're describing it, right? It's not the way a workforce person would necessarily think about it. Um, but when we really think about organizational design and business processes, being able to understand and speak the language of employers around how you support and advance this type of, of idea, recognizing that it does in many ways come down to the bottom line. I think it's it's important in some ways to be using the language that employers not only understand, but can actually work with in terms of creating internal process improvement. Because things like scheduling, by way of example, like that is a very fixable problem. It's a super fixable problem. Um, However, it it feels like a big hurdle, especially if you're a small or mid-sized company, if it means changing your shift schedules, 
adjusting your HR system, figuring out ways that you uh, run production, right? Like it feels overwhelming in some ways, but it is a solvable problem. Um, and I think it's just, again, hearing you speak about it and knowing with the work that Optimax has done, um, it takes a minute, but it's well worth it in the end when you make that adjustment. Well, the thing that will motivate HR to change systems is that this is essential to our business performance, right? If this is a key performance indicator, heaven and earth will be moved. I think a lot of the things that you have to do is listen to companies first. I'm not here to tell you I have a return on investment proposition for the similar company down the road. We've documented this over seven years because the first thing an owner will say is, I'm not that company. I'm different yeah, than yeah. that company, right? And ROI, you know, that's great. But if there's something that's causing me a fire drill on a regular basis that is related to my key performance indicators. If you present it in that way, I sit up a little taller and listen a lot closer and you get more time in my office to convince me that you can do it. You know, I I totally appreciate what you're saying because it's so true. Um, You know, my family owned a small manufacturing company in upstate New York. And I will tell you that Again, the challenges that they faced were very different than, you know, a company two doors down. And so it's just, again, it's interesting when it really is a customized approach to doing this. Um, but also, in, in addition to that, the key principles still remain, which is why I think what you guys have put together as part of the toolkit is so valuable, because in some ways, those principles translate. And it's just a different, in some ways, prescription, depending on what business you're working with, what employer network you're engaging with, um, et cetera. Um, so last question, um, as you're thinking about the future of this, the future of job quality work, um, what do you sort of see as the future, um, you know, recognizing that we've got a really rough road ahead over the next couple of years, but in some ways this can be a point of optimism um, as we build back better? Yeah, so, you know, I think right now it looks like we're in mired in what could become a case, case-shaped recovery. Um, where the, we've already seen the already prosperous and the already higher income and the already wealthier have been doing pretty well even during COVID. And we imagine that they're going to do even better <clears throat> as we get beyond the, the COVID pandemic and the start, start of the economic aftermath begins to recede. But there's, you know, in the same way that we saw over the last 40 years, a very large cohort of America mired in low-wage work and not able to achieve much, if any, economic mobility or equity in terms of opportunities that had been long denied them, either because of gender, race, or ethnicity. And I think we have to focus in on these kinds of things. And there's there's a couple of things I want to suggest, and they're maybe not the typical things for a workforce development audience. But, you know, I, I think, you know, <laughs> such a nerd, disclosure data and attention to job quality and DEI. So, you know, I think publicly traded companies are the um, ocean liners of our economy. Um, and, you know, not everybody's employed by them, but they're pretty big, important entities. And I think if we started requiring that they disclose information about their workforce and their job quality, this is, this is information they already have in their in their HR management systems and training and development data systems. 
and, and DEI data like they currently report in summary form to the e uh, Equal Employment Opportunities Commission. If they started reporting that, it would begin to set some standards that this is something that people should know about your company, that they want to know about your company. And we could begin to look at, well, aren't those companies with higher job quality and better DEI actually performing better than others? And you know, that's something that I've been working on with this cloud-based software system working metrics. So that companies can report a minimal amount of data. They can be assessed, rated, automated, and um, it generates reports. Um, I also think we have an opportunity to tie public and anchor institution procurement to job quality and DEI. Um, it's billions and billions of dollars a year that the public sector and other anchor institutions, mostly eds and meds, procure. And I would argue it's not just a good thing to look at job quality and DEI. It's material to the ability of the firms that we purchase goods and services from as to whether they're going to be able to maintain their price quality and reliability. If price quality and reliability are the main criteria we use to pick companies, we better know something about their job quality and DEI because otherwise we don't know whether they're going to be able to maintain it. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah, totally. Just as an example, the San Diego Workforce Partnership is use the working metrics to benchmark their own performance in terms of job quality and DEI. And they're going to be using a version of, of working metrics to um, purchase in their in their procurement purchases of services from providers and educational institutions. So I think it's not just in the private sector that we should be looking at job quality and DEI. We should be looking at it among all of our partners, vendors who are providing all kinds of things that we need to perform the core functions of our organizations and San Diego Workforce Partnerships. I'll, I'll give a shout out to them that they're, they're a first mover on this as far as I know. Well, I really appreciate that. And I think as you, as you shared, we can all do better and we all have to do better because not only does history dictate we need to, but the economy does as well. Um, and I'm hopeful that especially as we move into the next the next version of what the economy looks like, that it is better than what we started with um, or went into this recession with. Uh, but Mark, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for joining the Future Works podcast. You can download previous episodes at www.niatep.org.